Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for a beautiful morning. Uh, God, we thank you for the reminder that your mercies are new every morning. God, as we take time now to meditate on your word, I pray that the meditations of our hearts and that the words of my mouth, they would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, we pray that you would help us when we leave from this place today, that we would become more than just hearers of your word, but doers of it as well. And we ask all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, my name is Tyler, and I am a sinner. Thank you. I love this series that we're doing, and, and when Pastor Mark asked me to, to be a part of this series, to walk through step four, he's like, we're talking about addiction, and he looks at me and he goes, you're perfect for this. And I wasn't sure if I should be <laughs> flattered or offended, but this is so great because it's so, it's so much more than just the folks that we see and experience in, in our lives that, have, that suffer from addiction to drugs or alcohol. Each one of us in this room can relate to every single step that we're talking about. As he mentioned, uh, my name is Tyler. I get to serve at Family of God Lutheran Church in Southwest Detroit. And on behalf of Pastor Hill and all of our, our friends there, um, I just wanted to first and foremost say thank you to all of you uh, for, for your support, for your prayers, uh, for the financial support. We literally cannot do what we do without our supporting congregations. And St. John has blessed us in a mighty way. And we pray that that's going to continue on uh, moving forward because God's doing some incredible stuff. Uh, I can talk for hours about family of God. Uh, you can ask my wife um, and other people that have heard me talk about it, and I know that we're, we want to be out of here by 9 o'clock or so, so um, I'm actually not going to talk that much about it. In fact, I actually have a video that's queued up, uh, ready to, to just express what family of God is and who it is that we serve. On Detroit's southwest side, there's a family that's growing and flourishing. It's not your typical family, but what is in this neighborhood? Addicts, former addicts, people damaged by addicts. Most everybody has wrecked family lives. This is not a place where people who are healthy come. We have all kinds of people from different walks of life, from different races. One of my favorite pictures is there's a, there's a man named Clarence at the time, he was about 70 years old, and TJ was five, and they're playing Connect Four. And we are really a cultural rainbow. We probably have about a third white, a third black, and a third Hispanic uh, people that come here. And when they're all together, I mean, it's, it, it, is, it is very cool to see all different cultures, all different races, all different, I mean, even generational. Um, you can hear the, hear the sirens. That's also, I don't know if you can pick up the sirens, and that ambulance just rolled by the window, but you know, we are, we are, in, we are in a neighborhood that is immersed in drug abuse and violence. Family of God was a mission started in 1996 to bring the hope of the gospel to this community. It's now grown into a congregation on Whitaker and Central. Though the ministry works to build relationships and give people the power of God's grace and compassion. A long time ago, we thought of ourselves as a uh, first aid station for people coming in off the street. We would do what we could, patch them up, tell them about Jesus, and they'd walk out the door. Now we're trying to become a field hospital where we can actually do some healing as well as just patching them up and sending them out. 
In, in the last year, we've been working at trying to get to young people before they become casualties out there. Family of God offers meals six nights a week, a Bible study for adults, a growing kids ministry with tutoring services and Narcotics Anonymous meetings. With just a three-person staff and pastors Jim and Tyler, along with Amanda Becker, volunteers are welcomed, needed, and valued. We could not operate without them on Monday nights. Um, I'm so blessed to have um, you know, three adults helping out with the kids, especially for kids that don't get a lot of individualized attention, um, to be able to give them that, um, to be able to help them to build healthy relationships um, with adults that are going to be, again, pouring God's love, God's grace into them um, is a huge deal. Whether it's serving a meal, helping out in a Bible study, or even lending an ear, Family of God knows it takes a village. So many of the people they serve now understand the meaning of family. I came in as a homeless person off the streets, and from that first moment, running me, Tyler, Amanda, you know, and the pastor was an instant, like, open arms to me, you know, and um, I knew then I wanted to be a part and become a member of this. Thank you. So that's just a, a very small glimpse into uh, the life of Family of God. And uh, I will say from the bottom of my heart that it has been truly a blessing to be able to serve there. Because you get to see all kinds of, of things. And, and you see the, the darkest of the dark, but you also see God do some very incredible things. Things that can only be expressed and can only be explained through the power of Jesus Christ. So, I, again, I just I thank you so much for, for your willingness to partner with us and continue to pray for us. So as we look at, at the road, which many of our folks at Family of God are on, and all of us, actually all of us in this room, and all of us are at Family of God are on this road to recovery, on the road that essentially ends at Jesus. But I love that we're going through step by step by step. And, and I've, been, I've been looking at, uh, uh, listening to the messages uh, from, from Pastor Trinkline on Ash Wednesday, uh, Pastor Mark last Sunday, uh, Steve Wilson last week, and we looked at all the steps. So we're just going to do a quick run through of just to kind of get to where we are now. So step one, we talked about how we admitted that we were powerless over our addictions and compulsive behaviors and that our lives had become unmanageable. Step two, We've came, we came to believe that Jesus and only Jesus could restore us to sanity. And the gentleman at the end of the video, his name is David, a very good friend of mine, he actually told me that step two is the most important one. They're all important, but he said this is the one that kind of really starts to turn the, the addict's life around. Then we get to step three. Because we've been saved and redeemed by Jesus, we've made a spirit-led decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. And now we get to the action part. Step four. We've made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. If you go to the next slide, you can see a picture of me and David. And I, I love talking about this man because this man has changed my life. And I talked with him about this step, and the first thing that he told me about step four, he said, Tyler, this 
is where most drug addicts relapse, is in step four. Because what step four calls for is to take this moral inventory of ourselves and what that calls for us to do is not just to, to sit down and write our, our ideas and write what's going on in our lives. He said, Tyler, we have to run to the closet that we have stashed and stored all of our demons, where we've put all of the actions that we've done to hurt other people and all of the things that have been done to us. We, we jam them in this closet and we run to it and we peek it open and it looks something like this. And we peek it open, and he said, we see the boogeyman inside, and we slam it shut. Because we do not want to come face to face with what our lives truly are. Full of sin, full of brokenness, and full of destruction. He said the reason that we get scared to look in that closet, to kind of dig through and to, and to really dive into what it is that we need to do is because we're afraid that it's going to come roaring out like a storm and it's going to rip us up out of the ground. He compared it to being a palm tree in Chicago or in Detroit where the winds of the city knock over the trees. He said, we want to be like the palm tree in Florida. And I love this. He goes, well, palm tree in Florida, when the storm comes rushing through, he goes, we sway. We don't get, we don't get uprooted. We sway. And we, we work with the storm. But our roots stay firm because we have got to have balance. And he talked about balance being the most important part of this step. He says, because when we look at our, this moral inventory of ourselves and we want to, to calculate all of these things that, that we've done, I've, I've stolen from my parents, I've hurt my friends, I've literally destroyed relationships all in the name of drugs, but we forget that there is some good in us. And we know, we know theologically that there is no good in us. So what he was talking about was we don't like to, to admit that, that there are good things in our lives that we've done. Many of the people at Family of God, they are musically talented. Most of our folks, they, the reason that they, they're able to even make their money is because they're, they're doing odd, you know, odd jobs around the neighborhood, whether that's doing drywall or roofing or sweeping up a gas station, picking up trash, whatever that may be. We've got talents, We've got things that we can do. One of our guys, I was shocked to find this out. He's been on the street for about 10 years. He has a master's degree from the University of Michigan. But his life choices and his decisions have led him to where he is now. But those are good things that you can, that you can put in your moral inventory that have balance. And then he started talking about blind lady justice. The statue here. He said, most people look at this statue and they go, well, this is clearly a political statement that America is blind to justice. And I'm not going to get into that this morning. But we look at this statue, he says, Pastor Tyler, you look at this. He said, it's not that we're blind to justice. He says, we are blind to balance. Because so many people, all they want to do is look at the negatives in their lives. We have to take a full moral inventory. And step four 
Step four is where you truly get honest with yourself. Because those good things, those are, those are great. But acknowledging our sin for us, this is where this step is key. See, because we have this way when, when we sin against someone or, or when, when, the, when the drug addict is, is using, we have this way of trying to cover up our sin, cover up our, our, our actions. We refuse to admit that we have wronged or that we've done wrong. In fact, we love coming up with excuses, and I am no, I am no different than anyone else. I love coming up with excuses because I hate admitting when I'm wrong. Again, you can ask my wife, but please don't do that. But I do not like to admit when I'm wrong, and we're all like this. You know, we say, it's, it's where it's tax season, right? So we say, sure, I lied on my taxes, but you know what? I earned that money. I saw, I saw a thing on social media a couple of weeks ago, and it said, people cheating on their taxes absolutely disgust me. That's not the type of world that I want me and my 23 dependents living on. Right? We look at, at our own lives, our personal lives that are away from the church and we're, when we're at home and we've got disagreements with our spouse or our children and when the argument gets heated and we say something so mean and nasty that it tears our loved ones down and our response is not to admit that we've done wrong but it's to say, you know what, yes, I shouted and I screamed at my wife but you know what, she disrespected me. She deserved that. Yes, I shot up with heroin. Yes, I overdrank. But pastor, you have no idea the hurt and the pain and the things that I've experienced that have led me to this. I have to do this. I had someone tell me one time, he said, pastor, God made me a drug addict. He created me in this way. So that's what I'm going to do. Our excuses negate the confession. Our excuses negate the confession. And James, one of my favorite books of the Bible, compares this to looking at a mirror, which ironically is that first use of the law, right? It's we, the mirror or the law shows us our sin. But he says that when we make this confession, when we look in the mirror and we make that excuse, it's like we've walked away and we've forgotten what it is that we've looked like because we have not truly acknowledged our sin and we haven't really taken an inventory of ourselves. Psalm 32, David writes this. He says, For when I was silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. See, what David is saying here, he says, God, the excuses, the hiding, the silence, me throwing all these things in the closet, all these demons, all these things that have haunted me for my entire life, I can't hide them anymore. Because my strength is literally being sucked up. And I can't do it anymore. And I firmly believe that this is where God wants us to be. This is the position that God wants us to be in, where we have nowhere else to turn, where our lives have gone completely and gotten completely destroyed, where the only place that we do, we come to this point at Psalm 32, where we say, I can't do it anymore, God, I need your help. And then God comes 
through his son Jesus, he reaches down into our mess, into our addictions, into our suffering, into our shame, into our guilt, and he puts out his hand to us. He lifts us, and he carries us. And David writes in the next couple lines, pure gospel. He says, and we just said this this morning, he says, I acknowledge my sin to you, God, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. I will acknowledge my sin. I will look in the mirror. I will take an inventory, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David said, God, I have looked in the mirror. I did not run. I opened the closet. All the things came out. I swayed, but I am rooted in you, and I was not uprooted. You forgave me. In our gospel lesson this morning, this is what Jesus is talking about when he's talking to Nicodemus. He says, you must be born again by water and the Spirit, in baptism, being redeemed and marked and claimed as a child of God and forgiven. It's no longer I that lives, but it's Christ in me. He says the Son of Man must be lifted up, and we look to him and to him only, and we call upon his name, no matter what it is in that closet of ours. No matter what secret sin, we call upon his name for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever calls upon his name, whoever believes in him, whoever acknowledges his sin will not perish but have eternal life. God did not send Jesus to condemn the world. He did not send Jesus to condemn the sin addict, the drug addict, the alcoholic. He did not bring Jesus into this world to condemn us, but to save us. So the purpose of step four, taking this moral inventory, is not that we would come face to face and be judged and be condemned for these things that we're hiding, but it's actually that we would be freed from guilt and from shame. Because taking an inventory of ourselves leads to forgiveness in Christ. Paul calls us before we, we come to the Lord's Supper, he says, he, he invites us to take this moral inventory of ourselves before taking communion and because there's freedom and there's forgiveness in the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' body and blood, the tangible forgiveness that we can reach out and touch and experience because that's the type of God that we serve, someone who makes that forgiveness tangible and real for us. And we're set free. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I love telling this next story as we kind of wrap up this step four. Another good friend of mine, his name is Rick, and He's been, he's been struggling with heroin addiction for a very, very, very long time. And Rick, a couple, about, a year, about a year ago, he, he had disappeared for about 10 months or so. And at Family of God, when people disappear, it's not, you know, we, it's usually one of two things. Either, either they've, they've gotten themselves clean, they've been in rehab, um, you know, and, and things are going really, really well for them, or 
the drug addiction has gotten the best of them, they haven't, ref- they haven't taken that moral inventory and they've ended up in jail or they've ended up dead. So when Rick came to us after being incognito for uh, about 10 months, he came to us, I'm sitting in my office and he comes in and he says, Tyler. I said, Rick, it's great to see you. Where have you been? And he goes, well, I've been with my mom up north. And he said, I've been 10 months clean. I said, that's fantastic. I said, I want to come and sit with you at dinner. We were about an hour away from dinner. And about 45 minutes go by, and we're getting ready to, to transition into our mealtime. And one of our elders comes up to me, and he says, Tyler, do you have the Narcan? Narcan is the, the chemical that, that we have on, on uh, that a lot of the EMS people have. We have it at church as well. Because um, it, it's an opioid blocker, so the effects of heroin, all of a sudden, they don't work anymore. And it's designed to bring somebody out of that overdosed comatose state. He says, Tyler, I need you to get the, the Narcan. I said, okay. And I walk outside, and on the steps is my friend Rick. And he's blue in the face and not breathing. Overdosed on heroin. And I praise God that when I gave him the Narcan that he kind of comes back. And what usually happens after that, the, an addict will kind of realize what's going on and then he'll flee because he doesn't really know what's going on. He doesn't know what to, what's going to happen next. So he runs. I didn't see Rick for three days. And he came back. And at Family of God, during Holy Week, we have a tradition where uh, the, Wednesday bef- the Wednesday of Holy Week, just before Monday Thursday, when Jesus washes his disciples' feet, we have a deacon that does this for our people at Family of God to show the love, to, to come down to us, to show that love that Jesus showed and we get to the point in the service where it's time for, that it comes time for the washing of the feet, and he says, I need a volunteer to, to go first. And from the back of the room, a hand shoots up, and it's Rick. And he comes forward, he says, I want to have my feet washed. And Deacon John washed his feet. And to this day, I have never been more convinced that the grace in the love of Jesus Christ, it knows no limits and it will seep into the deepest and the darkest parts of our lives because there is not a single thing in your closet, there is not a single thing, there is not a demon, there is not an addiction, there is not a sin that Christ did not come to redeem, that Christ did not come to save us from. And that love for each and every one of us. And I know that there are folks in this room that are struggling with more than just a sin problem. There's something deeper. There's something that we are afraid to take a moral inventory of because we are so afraid that if we acknowledge this sin that it is going to come rushing out of the closet and it is going to knock us over. But the love of Christ, the promise of Jesus and the promise of his death and his resurrection He says, I'm not going to let you weather this storm alone. I'm going to stand with you. And I'm going to take this storm with you. And you are not going to suffer the penalty for your sins. I'm going to do that for you. And Rick is an example of that. That tangible love, that tangible grace 
that God gave to each and every one of us. Rick Rick still struggles with addiction. I still struggle with addiction. We all still struggle with addiction. Going back to my friend David, he once told me, and I'll never forget this. He said, Tyler, it's not that I'm not an addict anymore. He says, I will always be a drug addict. But I'm a recovering addict that has been saved by Jesus. So my name is Tyler, and I'm a recovering addict that has been saved by Jesus. And so are you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, we thank you for the the grace that you've shown to each and every one of us, that grace that comes into the, the deepest and the darkest parts of our lives. God, we pray that you would help us not to, not to be afraid of what is in our closets. Lord, that you would not, we'd not be afraid of the, the things that have haunted us all of our lives, but that we would acknowledge our sins. We would acknowledge our iniquities, trusting in your word that says that you will forgive us. God, we thank you that you've sent Jesus into our lives for that forgiveness, to set us free from our addictions. Lord, we thank you that you have conquered sin, that you have conquered death, that you have conquered the devil, and that has no power over us because you rose and you have given us the victory. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we leave here today to to be acknowledgers, to, to take our things to you, the things that we're struggling most with, so that we would be set free. Lord, as we are recovering addicts, we pray that you would continue to walk with us. We thank you that you have claimed us and redeemed us and that we are saved by the washing in your blood. We ask all this in your name. Amen.